0: Greetings, friends. Michael Bauman from the Rear MLB Show here. On this World Series special, Zach, Ben, and I are going to examine the bizarre post-game events from Game 6 and take a look at the on-field action from the title decider, including the pitching change heard around the world. All that and more on today's show, right after this.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details.
0: All right, so welcome to the show. I would like to introduce my co-hosts, Ringer staff writer, Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Limberg, say hello Ben. Hello. It was late night last night. We're up bright and early recording this podcast this morning and I am too tired to make fun of Ben in the intro. That's how <laughs> uh, that's how things are operating today. The other the other way things are operating today is we're going to go in reverse chronological order uh partially because I'm irritated that I didn't get to see Tenet in theaters this summer, but also because Maybe for the first time in baseball history, the World Series result itself is not the biggest news story the day after the World Series is decided. Uh, Zach, you wrote about Justin Turner coming back onto the field after being pulled after a positive COVID test. So why don't you take us through some of the particulars and we'll talk about this because there's a lot to talk about here.
2: Yeah, well, first, I'll potentially dispute your claim that this is the first time in baseball history. Good. Good, I'm glad we're not, not starting rating. off yeah. no, this I important just,
0: conversation yeah. <laughs> with Zach being pedantic. I just remember I was, remember it. I was worried Rodriguez, we going to miss yeah. that for once.
2: <laughs> I just remember Alex Rodriguez opting out during Game Four of 2007, but that is not the point here. The point is that Justin Turner uh, was removed from Game Six of the 2020 World Series uh, in the eighth inning because he tested positive for COVID-19. He had his Monday test. Uh, come back inconclusive and that test came back inconclusive during the second inning of the game upon that inconclusive result, uh, reports say MLB fast-tracked his Tuesday sample that tested positive and he was removed from the game uh, as I guess, protocol mandates protocol also mandates that the player who tests positive then must remain in isolation uh, until he <laughs> tests negative eventually. And that did not happen last night. He was told to isolate. He refused and went back on the field. Uh, Ken Rosenthal said he insisted, and uh, it seems that nobody, not MLB, not uh, the Dodgers front office, not uh, any coaches or players stopped him. He hugged teammates. He kissed his wife. He was touching the trophy everyone was passing around, and I think most gallingly, he took his mask off and posed for photos sitting in the, the center of the group photo next to cancer survivor Dave Roberts next to uh, Dodgers vice president of baseball operations, Andrew Friedman. Uh, and it's a whole mess.
0: Yeah, this is uh, I mean, it's the days since someone was a huge selfish idiot sign gets reset to zero here. Uh, it's I mean, I, I was already to. Go on about how convenient it is that we've had MLB sending out these pref- uh, press releases, seemingly you know, every couple of days about oh we've tested how we've done tens of thousands of tests and not had any any positives in the playoff bubble. Which one thing I appreciate about your story last night, Zach, is you went out of your way to explain that this is not in fact a bubble, no matter what terminology mlb used uh and we get our first positive test two innings before the world series is over so i guess that's a a bullet dodged and then i just i'm i struggle to comprehend the idea that he got back out, out on the field it's just so incredibly irresponsible and we can get into assigning blame and and the how you're actually supposed to stop him but Ben, you know, what was your reaction to, to, to seeing this unfold? It really ballooned. One thing got worse as on live television, or one thing came after another on live television while everybody was watching.
3: Right. We were trying to piece it together along with everyone else. And you heard uh, Justin Turner is not in the game. Where's Justin Turner? Justin Turner tested positive for COVID. Justin Turner has disappeared from the field. Okay. That part makes sense. But then he reappeared, and I think that was the part where we were all very perplexed because he was just going about his business as if he had not tested positive for COVID. It seemed like the team was not taking any precautions being around him. And so there were all these images that I think, given what the country has been through, given what all of these players have been through, what the sport has been through, etc., to see everyone just completely throwing caution to the winds there and just seeming to say, I guess, mission accomplished. We made it. Season over. You know, If the point was to crown a, a champion and to get everything completed, it's almost as if they just said, well, we made it. It's over now. And now we can just completely forget about all the protocols that got us to this point and that most of us are still living with on a day-to-day basis. So it really kind of, uh, I think for a lot of observers, if not necessarily the Dodgers themselves, seemingly cast a a pall over those proceedings because you wanted to have the vicarious joy of getting this uh, postseason monkey off their backs and winning this championship. And Turner would have been part of that feel-good story. And instead, in large part, it it turned out to be a a feel-very-uncomfortable story, at least the night of.
2: Yeah, I think from my perspective, this has repercussions in three different areas. Area number one is potentially physical, the actual spread of the virus. Obviously, we will wait to see what the test results say about all of the other Dodgers, their wives. Ken Rosenthal reported that at least one of the wives is pregnant. Uh, the their kids running around on the field, everyone who might have come in contact with Justin Turner during the celebration. Uh, repercussion number two is I think symbolic because MLB basically all season has tried to cast itself as a symbol first as coming back and showing that even amid the pandemic, we can still stage a season. And and then particularly during the last two months without any positive tests to show, wow, we, we pulled it off. We did it. We accomplished what we set out to do. And I think it's really fittingly symbolic that the season started with a star player, Juan Soto, being pulled out of the opening night game because of a positive test, and then it ends in the same fashion with Justin Turner, but particularly the symbolism of a, a, a powerful person flouting the rules that everyone else has to abide by. Uh, there were quotes to the effect of uh, Andrew Friedman saying he wanted to be on the field and take a picture with the trophy. I don't think there was anyone that was going to stop him from going out. And first of all, somebody should have been able to stop him. That is the purpose of protocols written into the rule book. But you also have had people across the country all year putting off celebrations, birthday parties, weddings, bar mitzvahs, high school and college graduations, because even if it might be important to them, there is a broader, important societal mandate here. And I think Turner flouted those rules last night if the reporting is at all close to what actually happened. And then uh the third area I see a repercussion is in terms of that that conversation that Ben you were talking about now that Dodgers fans have been waiting 32 years to see their team win a title and then within 5 minutes, 10 minutes all of a sudden the celebration is completely soured by what happened here. And that is not the most important consideration, but it is one. And I think we all enjoy baseball and would love to talk and argue about uh, Kevin Cash's decision to remove Blake Snell and would love to argue about, you know, should Corey Seager have been MVP or Clayton Kershaw? And what does this mean for Kershaw's legacy? But we're not talking about that. And we shouldn't because this in the moment is more important. And I think it's really fitting that the baseball season that started in such a fashion ended in one too.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to your second point cuz there was a lot of quotes um you know you put the the Friedman one in our notes. Mookie Betts said something substantially similar uh that this is a huge moment in Justin Turner's life who's going to deny him the opportunity to celebrate it. And a, a big part of me is sympathetic to that. That this guy just played a huge part in winning the World Series. This is the pinnacle of his professional career. It's going to be the greatest moment of the th- of his life in the thing that he's devoted his entire life to, and a a lot. Like I understand the nobody's going to stop me from it, from enjoying it impulse, but part of being a responsible member of society is knowing when to to mitigate that impulse. And this is a 35-year-old man who is either unaware or doesn't care about the risk that he's putting other people in. And I think that this is why our, this is part of the reason why societally, um, the United States is having such a hard time coping with this, is that we've been trained to believe that that our actions determine our own destiny. And the nature of this disease is such that your actions don't determine your own destiny so much as they determine others. And that's, what I've, that's part of what I find so offensive about this. And the other thing is, like you said, Zach, that we've been sitting—you know essentially sitting home, putting our own lives on hold for, for seven months as someone who's been very careful about where I go and who I see, it, to see somebody on national television for everybody to see, uh, just saying the rules don't apply to me. The way it might apply to to you guys is just I find that just really offensive. And uh, but the the blame doesn't rest entirely with Turner because it's somebody should have been able to stop him. If he in this great moment of of, of joy and emotional heightenedness uh, can't be responsible for himself, then somebody needed to to step up. And, you know, I don't know if it comes to physically tackling him. Or get you know having somebody get him out of the out of the ballpark before the game's over, but this is you know there's not a plan. Somebody needs to be in charge, and if MLB is going to paint itself as this good corporate citizen that's that's playing a, a part in the American recovery, you know, I don't know if if the fact that they're letting fans that they let fans back into the stands for the World Series, uh, completely rips that veneer off. But if it wasn't ripped off before, it is now, and it's it's. You know, it's uh, unjustifiable that that this happened. Uh, that that his that Justin Turner's bad decision got through so many other what should have been so many other layers of people, but nobody was paying attention to it seemingly, and it put so many other people at risk and sent such a bad message to to the entire baseball watching public. The nation's eyes were were on this game last night, and this is how baseball uh, chose to operate. And it's it is the biggest story. It should overshadow the. The actual results of the World Series, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, part of me is glad it, that that it is because as much as I'd like to be talking about the game itself, the game is not the most important thing that, or it's, the game itself is not the most important way in which Turner and the Dodgers and Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred interact with with society, and it's just a, a real, a really disappointing uh, lack of responsibility on multiple fronts here.
3: Yeah, and it really is sort of symbolic for all the reasons that you've said, both of you, and also I think just because there's this void of leadership here, clearly, and someone acting selfishly, and the people who should have been in place to step up and stop him not doing that, and thus endangering the entire group, and so you can you know make it into a, a metaphor for everything for the the whole situation that we find ourselves in still. Several months after all of this started here, and I think also, you know, on the whole, I'm glad that baseball came back. I I think despite the misgivings that we all had about the season starting and despite the way that it was very nearly derailed shortly after it started, I think as far as we know, at least the the worst cases were averted and it'll be in the players, I, I think. Got their act together to some extent as the season went on, and were able to complete the schedule in a way that, by the end, didn't seem entirely irresponsible. And I think it it did bring some solace and comfort and distraction and all of those things to an extent, but only to an extent. It was always just a uh, you know one news story away, one positive test away. The specter of the coronavirus was constantly hanging over the season, and at times it stopped the season, at least for some teams and some players. So there was never any moment when you could put it out of your mind, and that applies to, as Zach said, the very first game of the season, and it applies to the very last game of the season. and. As we are speaking, we don't know exactly what the ramifications of this will be for the Dodgers. Will they have to hang around here for weeks? Will they have to isolate? They'll all be getting tested and contact traced, and then we'll find out whether this spread uh, either as a result of this celebration or uh, as a result of previous interactions, and we'll see whether it gets worse than it already was, but it, it did set a bad example at a time when you would like it to be a just a, a purely celebratory moment. And I think also you have to wonder what would have happened if the Rays had come back and won that game and forced a game seven. Yeah, <laughs> with the Justin Turner situation, there would have been so much pressure on MLB to complete the series to get that one last game in and frankly, who knows what have happened. I think if they had acted in a way that was consistent with how they handled these situations in the regular season, they would have had to shut things down. And, you know, based on the response post-game, I don't know whether that actually would have happened because it, it didn't seem like anyone was really willing to step in in that situation when Turner was obviously in a very emotional moment. And I think everyone was to a certain extent, and, and they were all willing to kind of... Uh, throw away their better judgment in this moment of triumph
0: and to a certain extent it's it almost seems like they don't care as long as they being the league and the and the players to to some degree is as long as we got across the finish line nothing else matters and we had after last night uh you know cody bellinger tweeting the mayor of los angeles eric garcetti who's someone who you know never makes decisions that undermine public health he's tweeting him talking about a parade and we saw how a championship parade went uh in in the tampa bay area when the lightning won the stanley cup and they've got alex Kalorn feeding champagne to randos and they're all putting their mouth on on the trophy and what now that the season is over the dodgers are gonna can justin turner unless he, unless he isolates it's going to spread COVID to, to other people. He's, he may have already spread it to other people on the Dodgers. How, how many dozens of people were on the field last night or who were exposed who didn't have the, you know, the information to make smart decisions about their own health based on, uh, you know, based on not having all the, the information they had available. And is this a situation now where because the season's over, because MLB is cashing these, these final TV checks, that because they they got fans in the stands and got to collect gate, these people are going to be contagious long after the the season is over. And is this MLB saying, "Not my circus, not my monkeys"? That we're going to have a parade now, you know, and uh, and maybe expose more people. And because it's not strictly within the auspices of the of the league's quote unquote bubble, uh, are they gonna, not going to take responsibility for putting people at risk? You know, it if they fly home, you know, it's this going to put flight crews and, and uh, airport staff and flight attendants at, at risk. It's just this is the reason this is dangerous is you can't anticipate the second and third order effects of nobody stopping Justin Turner from making this bad decision. And, you know, I I really hope that that all that happens is they look foolish and that somebody doesn't get seriously sick or die as a result of this because you know i like baseball as much as anybody and i'm not you know i'm not willing to kill other people to have it back to have it look like normal um and i you know i really hope it doesn't come to that uh i think
2: one of the other andrew friedman quotes that stood out to me from last night is when he was asked about Uh, Turner not wearing a mask at points during the on-field celebration because Friedman had said Turner was wearing a mask when (laughs) photographic and video evidence uh, showed the contrary. And Friedman said, quote, if there are people around him without masks, that's not good optics at all. And I think oftentimes when you hear the word optics used like that, it's almost used as kind of
0: dismissive.
2: It's dismissive. It's an elision of what truly matters. But I think here the optics actually do matter, but not for Major League Baseball, but for the people watching. Because right now we are in the throes of a massive uh, surge of cases and hospitalizations and deaths throughout the country. I live in Illinois, where the governor just uh, instated new limitations on restaurants because of the number of positive cases. And all the states around me have seen a, a massive uptick. I think something like 47 states are seeing a rise in caseload right now, all except a couple states in northern New England. And I think we are at a spot with the pandemic, as we kind of have been the whole time, but particularly now, that you can't take any of this for granted. And I've seen some discussion that, oh, what if it's a false positive because those exist? And sure, there's a possibility. But first of all, uh, Ken Rosenthal reported that that's not the case. And even if it were, if you don't know that it's a a false positive in the moment you can't take that risk because odds are that it's not so even if it turned out to be a false positive in retrospect and you could try to justify the decision saying he wasn't putting anyone at extra risk like you don't know that in the moment and that is that is really playing with fire
0: yeah it's the metaphor i saw someone use last night is it's like giving a drunk friend back his car keys And just because he gets home without crashing in anything doesn't mean it was a smart decision. Doesn't mean that you didn't put other people in danger. And we talk a lot about on the, on this podcast about the difference between process and results. And this is a real life example of, of the process speaking volumes, no matter what the results actually are. So I think that's, that's a smart thing to, to draw attention to, even if they come back two days from now and say, Oh, it's, it's a false positive. Nobody got sick. That's, not really the point. The point is the actions that you're taking at the mo- in the moment with the information that you have, and you know it's just a very cavalier way to to operate. And you know it. it what should have been what was the the climax of of a what should have been the the most joyous moment of the season for frankly everybody but Rays fans. Like it now. This is what we're talking about because because these grown-ups in the room couldn't behave responsibly. All right. So I think we've set our peace on that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're actually going to talk about the game in the series because, you know, something happened that that made uh, made Justin Turner so happy that he came back out on the field and took his mask off. So we're going to talk about the game itself right after
3: Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom.
2: Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a
3: vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. (laughs) Thomas's, huzzah, a toast to breakfast.
1: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All
0: right, so game six actually, actually game five happened since the, and several other games besides happened since the last time we talked. But let's dive right into uh, game six, the Dodgers pulled the same. Uh, the, essentially the same pitching plan that I criticized them for using in game two. And uh, this time it worked. Uh, I don't know that Tony Gonsolin pitched well, but a lot of the guys who came came in behind him certainly did. Uh, you know, they held the the race to one run. Randy Arena put Tampa Bay up uh, in the very first inning and the race didn't score again and didn't really come particularly close to scoring. So uh, this. Yeah, Blake Snell pitched incredibly well and we're going to talk a little bit more about the particulars of that but uh, the Dodgers came up big you know this this pitching staff came up big uh, this much maligned pitching staff I should say that was looked at certainly the guys who uh, who threw on on Tuesday night were sort of the weakness of this Dodgers team and uh, they came up huge when it mattered most.
3: Yeah, the bullpen pitched, what, seven and a third of scoreless relief. Uh, It's almost uh, strange to draw a distinction between relief and starting at this point in the postseason because Gonsolin gets five outs. He's uh, basically in the same role as other pitchers who came in after him, but Urias was the hero out of the bullpen. He has been excellent in the postseason this year and really in all years, and he, I think, bailed Roberts out from uh, having to do anything drastic. I think up until the very last out, we were all just kind of on Kershaw high alert, as ridiculous as it would have been to bring Kershaw into this game on extremely short rest. You, you can know.
0: forgive us for expecting the ridiculous stuff. <laughs> yeah, though, yeah. I mean,
3: <laughs> we've been conditioned to to fear and expect that, so... We were spared that moment. Kershaw was spared that moment to possibly spoil what I think was a a very narrative-correcting postseason and series. I mean, he, he did it, right? He delivered it. It's not just that the Dodgers won, but it's that Kershaw played an important part in that victory. He pitched well most of the postseason. He had the brilliant start against the Brewers. He pitched well in two World Series starts, got the win if you care about who gets the win. And I think he really addressed every complaint about his postseason performance. He doesn't wipe away all of the lackluster performance in the past, but in a sense it does because I think and hope that we can all stop talking about this now and just acknowledge that Kershaw is the best pitcher of his generation and the Dodgers are the best team of this particular time. And they finally translated that regular season success into postseason success. So no more caveats, no more narratives. They did it. They deserved it. They have been as close as you can come to a dynasty without actually winning a World Series in that they've, eight, they've won eight straight division titles, which is extraordinarily difficult to do, particularly in this era. And all the excuses that people had to come up with for them and playoffs are a crapshoot, et cetera, et cetera, now just no longer needs to be said. And they came back from a deficit in the NLCS. I think they really addressed every doubt that has ever been leveled against them. They're a great team. They'll probably be back next year, but they won't have the the same sort of stain associated with their resume any longer. And it's been long enough.
2: Yeah, they're no longer the Buffalo Bills. They, The entire legacy of this era of Dodgers baseball has been recast because of this one title and I think that's kind of the way it always has been in sports, right? Like we have we cast these stumbles and these game seven losses and game five losses in the the Nlds in the moment as these huge murky questions, like, will this prevent them from ever winning? But now in retrospect, it's kind of just obstacles on the eventual road to triumph the The sweetness for Kershaw's victory is made all the sweeter because of the sourness he had to sustain along the way. And I think, I mean, the Dodgers are certainly going to be the best uh, projected team heading into next season. There hasn't been a repeat champion in 20 years. There's a lot of, there are a lot of accomplishments the Dodgers can still reach with this core because this core is not going away both in terms of the players they already have signed long-term, like Mookie Betts, who is now there for the next decade plus, and also because of the young players who didn't really play a role in this title. Like Gavin Lux was not on the playoff roster. Dustin May didn't pitch all that much. I think they have so many young players still around that this, this is kind of the first in what could be a succession of titles, which is strange to say when we've had Part of this core together for nearly a decade, losing, but that's the advantage of having this kind of perpetual motion machine of player development. Is it's never going to stop. Ben, you wrote what, like five, six years ago at this point, asking when yeah. will the Dodgers ever have a losing record again? And I don't think that is <laughs> no, anywhere. No. Yeah, I don't think that's anywhere close to happening. Uh, I'd be certainly more surprised if they like don't win a hundred games again next year than anything else.
0: Yeah, I I think with Kershaw specifically, we've seen the failure to win a title despite being one of the best players in the world and despite being on good teams that defines the player until the instant it doesn't and then it becomes something that it, that almost immediately goes like, "Oh yeah, I remember when?" Like we saw it's not just baseball, like we saw with Alex Ovechkin, we saw with John Elway. Like this, this transcends sports, this idea that you're not completely validated, no matter how, if, even if you're one of the best ever to play the game until you get that ring. And then once you get that first ring, then everything else is, is, is gravy. And so I, th- I think we're going to see something else or something like that play out. And, you know, not to go back to the Justin Turner thing, but when the Caps won the cup a couple of years ago, like that, it's still, the, they threw the wildest multi-day, uh, championship celebration party that that I've ever seen and it you know it sucks that that the Dodgers don't get to have that that same kind of release but yeah this team is gonna like you just brought up that Mookie Betts has signed for the next 12 years like I almost forgot about that I keep forgetting that Mookie Betts is on this team because they've got so much talent and he's he's not holding this whole thing together they were a championship caliber team before he showed up they are like Zach said you know, without Dustin May as part of the rotation, without Gavin Lux on the the roster, without Kiebert Ruiz, uh, they're one of their top catching prospects on the on the post or on the postseason roster. They managed to to beat a really good Braves team and a really good Rays team and win this title. And like the big wheel keeps on spinning around because with this farm system, with this uh, with this level of financial commitment, they can keep spinning off. Trades for the next Mookie Betts, or they can keep, they can let Yasmani Grandall walk and replace him with Will Smith, who might be even better. And so, what's to stop this team, for instance, from trading for Francisco Lindor? And I was just going to bring that up. You know, that's the that's the thing that that is just sort of floating out there in the the middle distance that that they can pull off that trade right after pulling off the Mookie Betts trade, right after promoting a, m- a bunch of their young guys after extending Kershaw and Jansen uh, and Turner and keeping that core together. uh, It's just, you know, I don't know if this is, if this is the easiest front office job in baseball, just because of the scrutiny and the expectations that that level of resources brings. But yeah, like, like you guys said, I don't see a a point in the future when this team isn't competitive, when this team isn't one of the, the absolute favorites to, to win the world series every single year.
2: And I think we've had several instances in recent years of a team winning a title and immediately asking, will they turn into a dynasty? Uh, We did it with the Cubs. We did it with the Astros. We're now doing it with the Dodgers. And I think there is a difference. uh, There is a difference in the baseline level those teams already had before winning the championship. Like we know the Dodgers will be back in the playoffs year after year after year. We didn't have that baseline expectation with those other Rosters, And especially with the sort of player development, the, the combination of player development and financial advantages the Dodgers bring, you're already seeing kind of the Cubs competitive window and the Astros competitive window coming to some extent to a close. The Astros hasn't yet, but I don't know who plays in their outfield next year. Mike, you might be suiting up in left field. So I think Oh, I hope not. Yeah, I think the the Dodgers just don't have those kind of limitations, whether Actually, there are just sort of artificially mandated, but it's not like they are just bursting onto the scene. They've been here for a while.
3: And I've got to say, I've really enjoyed the Dodgers postseason experience for the most part, as a, a pretty impartial observer who is not going to be heartbroken when they did lose. Sorry, Dodgers fans, but I really got to know this team in a way that. I don't think I'm as intimately familiar with most teams because, you know, I I catch them now and then I I tune in for some of their games. I do not see just the volume of games of most teams that I see of the Dodgers, which is partly because they're a great team and there are a lot of reasons to watch them. But it's also because they're always on this postseason stage. And because of that history that we have with these players, every Appearance is fraught. I mean, every time Pedro Baez comes in, you think of seven other Pedro Baez outings, which are you know probably probably painful memories for Dodgers fans. But I'm I'm
0: positive <laughs> I remember Pedro Pedro Baez giving up a home run to Dave Henderson in 1988.
3: You know, <laughs> it, it seems like that, right? It's like every single year. And as tiresome as the Kershaw conversations and the Dave Roberts bullpen usage scrutiny was at times. It really just added an additional layer of, I think, emotional investment that I would not normally feel for a, a team that I don't personally root for. And even with Kershaw, I mean, I don't know that I would feel the attachment or affection for Kershaw that I do, if not for the fact that it took them so long to get to the mountaintop. I mean, Kershaw is great. I think you can admire his excellence and his drive and his dedication, But he's not the most cuddly player out there. And if I were not someone who had rooted for his team, I don't know that I would feel the way that I do about him, if not for the fact that he has been on the receiving end of all of these he's a choker arguments for years and years, that in many cases I've felt almost obligated to come to his defense. Yeah. And so, Ben, can I stop you and ask you a quick
0: question? Sure. Who is the most cuddly player out there?
3: Oh, I mean, Mookie's up there, right? Mookie is uh, as cuddly as they come, I think. Yeah. So I I, I think really it's just that everyone has a, <laughs> a history here on this team. And it's like when Corey Seager starts raking, you think of, you know, young Corey Seager when he couldn't hit in the postseason initially or Bellinger for that matter. And Kenley Jansen, and you know, maybe you're thinking of the fact that Kenley doesn't have the the Pete Kenley cutter anymore, but he still looks like Kenley, and you still remember all of those moments when he's either succeeded or, or let them down. And you just don't get that with most teams because most teams do not make the playoffs year in and year out. And if they do, they they don't keep losing before they win the World Series. Which is the other thing I think about the Dodgers is that we weren't really sick of them. Like You couldn't begrudge them their continued attempts to win the World Series because they hadn't done it. It's not like they were the dynasty that everyone was trying to knock off. It's not like we were all sick of them. We were, to some extent, if you didn't have a rooting interest against them, rooting for them, or at least saying, well, as long as they're you know not breaking through yet, then they've got to keep trying. So I never felt like they were the villains in the way that the Yankees just inherently are, or that the Astros have made themselves. They're a juggernaut, but they win in this incredibly entertaining, well-rounded way with a ton of talent. So I think that's important.
0: You always get your money's worth from an entertainment perspective. And maybe that means that that could be interpreted as saying that they don't have like the killer instinct of the, the Jeter Yankees or, uh, or something like that. But It's the ride is always fun with this team. And I agree that that getting to to know these players like they really feel like a a fixture. You know, it would be it would be weird to have a postseason certainly this late in the postseason without them.
2: I think from the the opposite perspective is the Rays because they are new on the scene. Right, Ben, you wrote about how are you trying to
0: do a segue, Zach?
2: No, I was just thinking about that. I guess, I guess so. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: You just can't help yourself. No, this is, this is your thing now. I think, I think you're going to be the transition man. You're going to be our, uh, our Brendan Donnelly, our 96 Rivera. You're going to get us from, from one place to another.
2: It just seemed to me that the natural next talking point is how different the rays are from what Ben was just talking about, because they are new. They, were in the playoffs last year, obviously, but they lost in the first round and they hadn't advanced even to the ALCS since back in 2008, which was a completely different young, fun group, uh, none of whom remain any longer. And I think the Rays are certainly not going away either. They just had the best team in the American League and they have the best farm system in all of baseball with the single best prospect, Wander Franco. I think the the takeaway from the series for me in terms of the Rays... Is just how outmatched their lineup was. This was the third consecutive series where they were out hit. The Rays in the World Series had nine different players bat in every game, and only two of them even had a 750 OPS. That was uh, obviously the deity, Randy Rosarena, and Kevin Kiermeyer, who, who, who hit well, but you don't expect Kevin Kiermeyer to run an 1137 OPS over the lineup. I long know term. I didn't. I yeah.
0: probably <laughs> the single thought I had. I had the most during this world series, Was how is Kevin Kiermaier on base again? It was not this in a world series of surprises. Uh, that was up. There as one of the biggest for me.
2: When we were previewing the series, we talked about the lineup imbalance, just in terms of looking at where the different players batted about how Cody Bellinger, the reigning NL MVP was hitting sixth in the Dodgers order. And the bottom of the Rays lineup just couldn't compete with that kind of depth. And, you saw that in the series, Willie Adams hitting 143, Joey Wendell hitting 111, Austin Meadows 188, Mike Zunino 063. And these are good players. I think the Rays do a great job platooning and getting at least kind of playable people at every position. They're not really at replacement level anywhere, but there's a difference between average and well above average when it comes to, to deep in the playoffs. And I think that's where they need... Prospects like Wander Franco and Vidal Bruhan to step up and give them that top tier talent, or go out and sign someone, which they could do if their owners were willing to do. spend more money.
0: So this you're sort of steering into to my post game column, which, if in case anybody's wondering why Zach wrote the the coronavirus column and it wasn't something that was two thousand words and full of me mfing everybody, that's uh, because I was busy working on on this angle, which is that the Rays. Put together, I think they did really well to put together this team on this budget. Uh, the pitching staff is incredible. The defense is incredible. The lineup is fine, and they've got a lot of good good hitters who didn't really show up. You know, Brandon Lau uh, hit one twenty five. I think Austin Meadows is a way better hitter than he showed in this postseason. Adamas had some big moments earlier in the playoffs, but didn't really get much done in the in the World Series. And the way around that is like I like I said, they could have. Imagine this lineup with Joey Wendell or instead of Joey Wendell and Manuel Margot, you have Anthony Rendon at third base and Bryce Harper in right field. And they could have put those guys on their current contracts into this lineup and not broken the top 20 in payroll. And that's the, I think this showed how far smart front office. That's not really afraid of, of looking silly, how far they can go. They can go to the best record in the American league. They can go to the world series but once you're there against a team that's pretty much as smart that's outspending you four to one, there's no room for error. There's no room for Nick Anderson to suddenly lose it. There's no room for uh, for Meadows and Adamas and, and Lauda to disappear, those guys that have carried this lineup uh, all season. There's, you know, there's no room for Tyler Glass now to to start nibbling. Just those things went wrong and they couldn't score their way out of it. How how frequently this series did the Rays fall behind by one run? and you never really felt like they had a chance to get in it. Like That sixth inning that we're going to talk about that that would have dominated this discourse, it would have turned into a John McNamara leaving Dave Stapleton on the bench type of managerial uh, misstep in the World Series. That shouldn't have killed this season. They only allowed two runs in that inning, and they couldn't score their way out of it because it's not a great offense. It's just the best offense that that you can buy for a dollar eighty six. And uh yeah, th- that's the weakness of this team going forward. As much as much as I'm glad that they got this much exposure, as much as I like watching them play, as much as I like a lot of the personalities on the team. And as impressed as I am that they've done this much, there's a ceiling to how much you can do on you know on cleverness alone.
3: Yeah, uh, Randy Rosarena is not enough <laughs> alone. Although he's close. Well, what ha- <laughs> what happens he, if he, he if he
0: doesn't turn into Barry Bonds out of nowhere? You know, right. like they don't you get, can get this far, I, Probably, I, I give them a lot of credit for, uh, for identifying this or something like this. I don't, I don't even think uh, even the Rays thought that this postseason was coming down the pike when they traded for him, but. You could have, get credit for identifying that kind of talent and that he's undervalued, that he could be somebody that they can plug into our lineup and, and uh, be a driving force. But he covered up so many other offensive weaknesses for this team throughout October. And they got taken to the brink by a not very good Astros team and kind of an underwhelming Yankees team. And the only team that they really handled in this postseason was the Buffalo, this is why you don't expand it to 16 teams. And so... It, there's the solution is obvious i just think the 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 solution is not something that ownership is going to be willing to pursue because they haven't so far in, in franchise history
3: yeah the dodgers outhit them by about 150 points of ops in this series and you know don't want to say that's necessarily emblematic of the difference between those lineups and obviously the rays could have easily won the series they could have outhit the dodgers over the course of six or seven games but That was, I think, the clear gap between those two teams, and it played out in this series. And maybe that's because it's harder to put a a great lineup together on the low payroll that the Rays run than it is to put together a good defense or a good pitching staff where you can just mix and match guys and find a bunch of relievers. And I don't want to discount how difficult that is and and how impressive a job the Rays baseball operations department has done to assemble that roster but it's just a little harder i think to find hitters you know even though a Arosereno was incredible it still took a, a top prospect to get him and no one could have expected that he would have one of the all-time great postseasons so these two teams were were both deep in certain respects and both really talented of course but the Dodgers were just better. I mean, they were arguably one of the, the best teams of all time, and we didn't really get to see them show that over the course of a full season. But there is, I think, zero caveat that needs to be applied to this zero asterisk, which that at least I, I think is a good outcome because, you know, coming into the season, I don't know that I thought the odds were great that I would be taking this title all that seriously. And as it turned out, I am. I don't think you need to really uh, discount it in any way because these two teams were the best in their respective leagues this year. They would have been playoff teams under normal circumstances, and they had harder roads to get to a title or to a pennant than they would have in a normal year. So if anything, it's more impressive in a sense that the Dodgers ended the drought this year.
0: Oh boy, that's going to be that talking point. You you thought you were sick of the the Kershaw play, playoff narrative. The does this title count for more or less than a normal title? I think yeah. it, the the fact that it shook out pretty predictably. Like before the season, maybe the thing that the like just from a pure on-field perspective with no look at the societal ramifications of the 60-game season or or the reasons for it I wanted to see this Dodgers team with David Price take a run at 117 wins. And I think that they had a decent chance of getting there. Um, And we're not going to, you know, we'll never know if they could have. Um, But I mean, just from from this World Series, Ben, you you said maybe the Rays can outscore the Dodgers over seven games. This the Dodgers were a run, a full run a game better than Tampa Bay offensively during the regular season. That's a Mm -hmm. huge hole to climb out of, even in a short season or even in a short series, even with really good pitching, and particularly if your best reliever uh, allows runs in seven consecutive appearances. How's that for a segue, Zach Graham? I could see you inching I'm closer nodding. to the mic.
2: That was wonderful, wonderfully executed.
0: Yeah, I think
2: the, the decision on which game six turned was removing Blake Snell in the sixth inning when Tampa had a 1-0 lead. Uh, Blake Snell he was dealing he had thrown five and a third scoreless innings struck out nine only allowed two hits but the second of those hits was a single up the middle from Austin Barnes which turned the lineup over for the third time now Blake Snell the first two times through the order so the bottom of the first facing Betts Seeger and Turner he went strikeout swinging strikeout swinging strikeout swinging then in the uh, the second time through the order Same three batters up, he went strikeout swinging, strikeout swinging, strikeout swinging. So that's a a pretty good turn uh, the first couple times through, uh, 0 for 6 with six strikeouts, but Kevin Cash removed him. And I think there are a lot of reasons to criticize this decision. Importantly, this is not post-facto criticism. It's not like, oh, Nick Anderson blew it, therefore it was a bad decision. In the moment, I think we were curious about what was going on not just because of how well Snell was pitching but because Nick Anderson despite being maybe the best reliever in baseball for about a year has not been good in this postseason we talked about that uh, on the World Series preview pod we gave that he just hadn't looked like himself against Houston he hadn't Looked like himself in the first few games of this World Series, but Cash went back and trusted him anyway. He gave up a double down the line to betsy uncorked a wild pitch, and he allowed uh, Betts to score from third with a ground out. So within six pitches, he had turned a, a 1-0 lead into a 2-1 deficit, and that was kind of the Rays' last chance. They didn't put anyone on base in the last couple innings. Uh, I, think, I think it's too simplistic to say analytics cost the raise the world series for a whole host of reasons, not least because I don't know if quote unquote analytics said to remove Snell in this moment. I think analytics need to be used as, as a guidepost as a tool, not as a hard and fast rule in and of themselves.
0: So I, first of all, I called this about 45 <laughs> minutes before it happened. I said that it ex- exactly the circumstances in in which Snell was going to be pulled and, and Anderson was going to come, come in. I think the the fact that it went so bad so quickly makes this decision look worse than it is, and I say that while with the caveat that this is not what I would have done because Snell is not a guy who 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 gets better as he pitches into games. Like this is not Justin Verlander, this is not Corey, you know, twenty sixteen Corey Kluver. this is not nineteen eighty eight Oral Hershiser. He's the the kind of pitcher who I would pull after 75 pitches in a situation like this if I had a better reliever available. I think the mistake is making Anderson that first guy out of the bullpen again and not shaking things up, not that Anderson was pitching here and not Diego Castillo. Uh, That's the the big mistake. And maybe that wouldn't have worked out any better. Maybe leaving Snell in wouldn't have worked out any any better. But it's a I think you can be disappointed with, with the, both the process and the result. The one thing that, that I think it's naive to be, or the one rea- reaction that I think it's, would be naive to have is to be surprised by this, because this is how Kevin Cash has managed every single uh, game this postseason. You know, we saw this, this is what he did in Game 6 of the ALCS, and it didn't work. And this is what he did in Game 7 of the ALCS with Charlie Morton on the mound, and it did work. This is what he did with Snell in Game 2 of the World Series, and it worked. And I guess part of having this kind of rigid plan that goes against what you might uh, do with your gut is that it takes some of the some of the irrationality out of the decision making process. But I, the real problem, you know, I don't the word analytics doesn't mean anything anymore. I think that that the Stephen A. Smith types have sort of assigned certain teams with with having that tag and really it's it's it doesn't it's not specific enough to be useful. I think that empirical analysis, a lot of that is knowing how to identify when to go with the numbers and when to go with something qualitative. And, you know, I don't know what what the smartest decision would have been. I don't know what the best process would have been. This is not the the decision that I would have made. Uh, But it's it's how the Rays operate and it's how they're forced to operate because they don't have an offense that can score with the Dodgers, for instance. And because they've been built around the cheapest possible way to get outs, they've got to they've got to rely on a pitcher who really hasn't been that effective. And clearly it didn't work out when they put him in a situation to to fail. He obliged them.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I have a bigger problem with the decision to bring in Anderson again than I do with the decision to pull Snell. and. As you said, uh, that's the script the Rays have stuck to all season. It has mostly served them well, clearly, (laughs) given that they were in Game 6 of the World Series. I almost, I mean, I admire Cash in a sense for sticking to this script in a situation where he personally had everything to lose and nothing to gain, you know, because no one would criticize him for leaving Blake Snell in, in that situation. He had to know when he was walking out there that he was going to wear it if anything went wrong after that, that it would be the Kevin Cash game for all time. When a pitcher is pitching a, a shutout to that point and has been basically cruising, there's no upside there. I mean, maybe the reliever will also not allow runs, but the reliever can't be better than the starter has been to that point. And if he allows any runs, he will be worse and people will blame the manager for making that change. But I think... The mistake maybe people make is assuming that a pitcher who has been pitching well will continue to pitch well. That is clearly not the case. It's especially not the case with Blake Snell if you look at his history. And you don't have to look far. You only have to look back to Game 2 where he was brilliant for the first four innings and then sort of fell apart in the fifth. Or you could go back to Morton in Game 7 of the ALCS. It's the same sort of thing. This is what the Rays have done. I don't have a big problem with pulling Snell there. And, you know, if you're citing Mookie Betts' splits against lefties in the 2020 season, you've lost me, I think, at that point. And I kind of admire the humility of a manager and a former catcher who says, you know what? I can't predict the future because the, the data shows that we're not very good at this overall and that how a pitcher has pitched up to a point in a certain game is not a great indicator of how he is going to continue to pitch. That said, I think to stick with Anderson, there was probably enough evidence as good as Anderson had been last season, this regular season, he really did not seem to have been the same guy in his last several appearances. He was not getting the whiffs. I mean, I don't know what the Rays were looking at that were evidently telling him that this was the same person, that they could expect the same outcome out of him. And who knows? I mean, it was Mookie Betts, right? Mookie Betts—he uh, gets hit. That's so, exactly. That's <laughs> the know? thing. The,
0: like the first three guys in this order: Betts, Seeger, Turner. Like, there's not a pitcher on earth that is going to set those three guys down every right. single time. Yeah. So, I don't. I don't know. I. I sort of wonder. Like the Rays don't have that guy in their bullpen. Nobody has that guy in their bullpen who's absolutely going to get those three guys out. I mean, I the. I don't think that's why they lost the game. I think that it's, that there's an extent to which we're dazzled by, by the proximity, by the fact that that looked like a bad idea at the time. And sure enough, it went bad so quickly, but they only allowed three runs and they scored one. And if you score one in a score run, one run, Oh boy. If you score one run in an elimination game, you're probably going to lose and you're probably going to deserve it. And uh that's the bigger problem for me, even you know, making no excuses for for either the process or the outcome there.
3: The one thing I'll say, and this is not Cash's fault or the Ray's fault, it's really a, a symptom of a more widespread problem. I, I think you can consider it a problem in baseball, which is that aesthetically speaking, I hate this. I mean, I think analytically speaking, it was fine. It it was not as terrible as people are making it out to be, at least the decision to pull Snell. But as a a narrative, as someone who's watching a World Series game and is watching a a pitcher who's been dominant and wants to stay out there, I would like to know what would have happened. (laughs) I would like to be watching a, a version of baseball, I think, where that guy gets to try And maybe it's hypocritical of me to say that because five, six years ago, whenever it was that managers were letting that guy go, I was among the chorus who was saying, hey, third time through the order, you know, this is a mistake. And we were singing that same song every single postseason. Well, now all of the teams are singing that song too. And we never get to go. We never get to see anyone go deep into games. And I think this postseason, it was particularly apparent. And I wrote about this for The Ringer and you can go look at the the graphs and the numbers if you want. But really, it was stark. I, I think that even pitchers who are pitching well just don't get to go deep into games. And we've written about it. We've talked about it, I'm sure. But I do think there is a cost to bullpenning even if it is the analytically correct move, it just sort of sucks to have a, a guy be pitching really well. And then at the first sign of trouble, he's gone and you don't get to see him try to work his way out of it. And you don't get to see him be the the real hero of that game or the goat of that game. Frankly, it's going to be the manager or it's going to be a, a reliever who just entered the game who we haven't been watching. And that's, I think, just not as fan-friendly. It's not as fun from a spectator perspective. The postseason pitcher's duel is extinct at this point. I mean, it's so rare that one starter goes deep into games. It's almost unheard of for both starters to go deep into games. And so every game is a bullpen battle. And there are costs to that in terms of strikeouts and pitching changes and length of game. But... I really sort of mourn it as just, hey, I want to see this guy dig deep to get this big out and get himself out of this jam that he created or, you know, hold an off-speed pitch in reverse that he hasn't shown this guy and wriggle out of this jam. Or maybe they just finally get to him and you're counting the pitches as they climb and you're saying they're going to knock him out of this game and have that actually mean something because there are, you know, eight relievers who are just as good as that guy the third time through the order. So, (laughs) <laughs> it's it's something that i i think we've lost a little bit and i cannot fault any particular team or any particular manager for that it's just that the incentives uh, align for teams to do what they can to win the game but that does not always align with what we want to see as fans i think
0: yeah i just real quick i don't think it's a bad thing to revisit analytical opinions you You know, you held five years ago and say, oh, wait, I don't actually believe this anymore. Or, oh, wait, maybe we were right, but this sucks to watch, particularly in baseball, which, you know, you look at what these the equivalent revolutions are doing in basketball, where it's all dunks and three pointers or football, where you're going for two more soccer, where teams are playing out from the back, where efficiency is frequently more exciting. The most efficient form of baseball it doesn't suck to watch. I had a good time watching this postseason, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, there's a little, it's, it's a little less romantic. And I, I agree with you that I, I miss as I think somebody who's definitely a little bit more, maybe the most liberal arts person on this podcast. It's, uh, it does suck to, to not have that, uh, you know, not have that, that image of the solitary postseason pitcher. So I don't think it's a bad thing to, to say, yeah, maybe this is what the incentives line up to do, but I'm not really a fan of it. I think you can hold both of those ideas in your head at once.
2: In the last decade, there have been a grand total of two World Series games in which both starters went at least seven innings. Uh, Kershaw versus David Price in the clincher last year, which wasn't really a pitcher's duel because Kershaw got hit hard. Uh, Yeah, two years ago, Kershaw got hit hard pretty early. And then the other one was in 2013, John Lester versus Adam Wainwright in St. Louis. I was at that game. It was great. And I think Ben, you're completely right that the aesthetics of this kind of decision matter because the World Series and baseball writ large is a story and we want our heroes to be to be the ones doing the actions that matter. I, I also I'm not sure if this is like completely Confirmation bias where I just remember the examples of it backfiring, but I do wonder analytically the effect of throwing so many high leverage innings and such a, a high volume in the playoffs. We've seen a lot of these elite relievers falter in the late rounds even like Andrew Miller in 2016 gave up runs in game seven of the World Series Will Harris last year David Robertson for the Yankees in 2017 Uh, Anderson this year even Pete Fairbanks who who was nails the first couple rounds he allowed runs in every World Series appearance he made including allowing a home run to bets last night and I just wonder what the kind of aggregated effect that has for a pitcher over three and now four different rounds and whether it whether it is as smart as the numbers make it out to be if yeah it might make sense in that particular game but if it lasts over the whole postseason sure there are counter examples the royals in 2014 and 2015 but i do wonder given these high profile letdowns of the last few years
0: yeah and even if there isn't an aggregated effect even and even peak andrew miller is going to give up a run sometime if you pitch him long enough so i mean that's it's going to happen and that's, I think that's where I think the smart analytical money has stepped away from bullpenning in the past couple of years is not it's it bullpenning, you know, in the 2013 14 definition relied on having like five implacable hundred mile an hour relievers in a row. And even in a world where everybody throws a hundred miles an hour uh, hitters can hit that now. And so the raise, I think are one of very few teams that have a deep enough bullpen to operate the way that they did pulling their very good starting pitchers early. But even, you know, we saw this with Nick Anderson, who's been one of the best relievers in the world for the past year and a half, just didn't have it. And that happens without warning or sometimes without reason. And it's going to happen to, to worse pitchers than him, uh, which is how most teams construct their bullpens these days, just because there aren't that many better. All right. Any final thoughts? We're sort of running up against a a time limit here. So uh, any parting shots from what I think was kind of a dull World Series with two really, really good games uh, on the heels of of a really good uh, LCS round? Um, But do you think we've got
3: the game four ending? kind of goes down now as uh, not as consequential as it seemed at the time, but that was an all-time great game and an all-time great play. And maybe Dodgers fans can look back at it and sob a little less, if not laugh at how that ended. It it really yeah. gave us a a great kind of, you know, all-time it was postseason uh, memory.
0: The inverse of game three in 2018. I was just
3: going to say that. Oh, Darn Sorry, you. sorry, sorry. <laughs>
0: No, uh,
2: Yeah, because the Dodgers like the Red Sox that year dominated the rest of the series, but the one most memorable game went the other way.
0: Really happy for Brett Phillips too. somebody who. It seems like like most hard hardcore baseball fans are aware of him and like him, but not for anything he actually does on the field. And it, sometimes it it gets right up to just the right side of patronizing. And I'm really glad he's got something he can dine out on an on-field achievement for the rest of his life. So uh, happy to see that. That was a wild game. Um, happy to see the the Dodgers, Kershaw and and Jansen and, and the rest of those guys finally get a ring, validating, you know, they shouldn't have needed to, but it really did validate uh, what that team has done. You can draw the line any number of places, whether it's the past four years, whether it's the past eight, whether it's the past, you know, you can go all the way back to, 2008 or even 2006 with with this dodgers run of contention and uh they finally capped it off and so it's you know it's just nice to see good players rewarded with with the title all right it feels weird to not have not have any any action to to look forward to next week but uh we're gonna come back next week and wrap things up uh and then we'll uh sort of navigate the postseason as necessary if you've been around the past couple years that's you you know who or you know how how that tends to shake out so all right thank you zach until then thank you ben thank you thanks to bobby wagner for producing today's episode and thank you for listening enjoy you know what just get some sleep and uh we'll see you next time